after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God. They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshing in the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any other who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, which who is enthroned between the cherub and the Ark. They set the Ark of God on the new chart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill. Huzah and Hael, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Hael was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Peres Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, David, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf. Wearing a linen effort, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. Raiders of the Lost Ark was an action film directed by Steven Spielberg. It was an extraordinary success. It won five Oscars, 
and it was the highest grossing film of 1981. Here's a picture. In the film, Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones, an intrepid archaeologist who travels the world in search of rare historical artifacts. The year was 1936, and he discovered that the Nazis were searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant. This is a wooden box covered in gold, which was made in the time of Moses. On the top, made out of pure gold, are two angelic figures known as cherubim, with wings outstretched. Jones realizes that the Nazis believe the power of the Ark will make their armies invincible and therefore they'll win World War II. He has to stop them. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. This is what happens at the end. The Nazis get, capture the Ark and they tie Jones and his girlfriend Marion up. To test its power, a character dressed as a priest performs a ceremonial opening, but they find that the Ark is just full of sand. However, Jones knows something's going to happen. He warns Marion to keep her eyes shut, and angels of death emerge from the ark, flames form above it, and bolts of energy shoot through the gathered Nazi soldiers, killing them all. Heads shrivel up, skin melts off faces, and another guy's head explodes. It's great fun for all the family. <clears throat> Flames then engulf the rest of the group in a whirlwind of fire before the ark dramatically seals itself shut. But Jones and Marion alone are spared. Their ropes are magically burned off and they embrace. And as the film closes, the ark is sealed away in a huge government warehouse and everything ends happily ever after. Now, that is a work of pure fiction. The filmmakers aimed to make their model of the Ark quite accurate, but in every other respect, the story is total fantasy. And it makes a key theological mistake to which we will return later. Now, as uh, Eunice read our text today, you may have been wondering what the Bible means by all this business about the Ark, about this box being put in a temple with another god and weird stuff happening overnight about it being transported on a cart and a guy who's apparently just trying to be helpful getting struck dead and then it being parked in someone's driveway for a few months and blessing him and his whole house what is this all about and if this is the first time you've been to church or you're just exploring christianity you may now be confirmed in your suspicion that christians are all mad after all you always suspected it, but now you know for sure. Some of them were even clapping during a song. My, my. Actually, if you're skeptical, can I ask you to press pause on that thought just for a few minutes? As we read this story of the ark in Samuel, we are actually touching profound spiritual realities. I want to show that this story involving King David's attempts to bring the wooden box back to Jerusalem, teaches us something that we need to know. Something that is vital for all of our lives. We will gain insights here that we really need. Because the ark reveals attention. God is dangerous. Yet God is good. And therefore we need a solution. God is dangerous, and yet God is good, really good, and therefore we need a solution. Point one, God is dangerous. Now, I wonder what your image of God is like. If modern Western people think about God at all, they imagine that 
He's kind of a Father Christmas in the sky. A benign, tame, indulgent being who just wants everyone to be happy. C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, and Lewis wrote these words. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said, of anything we happen to like, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they, like, they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. And so our culture has stripped God of his power and handed that power to the forces of nature. We are now in awe of nature, but there is very little fear of God. But when we turn to the Bible, we find an entirely different picture of God. Here he reveals himself as he really is, and it is deeply uncomfortable. It is radical. At times it's shocking, because this God is dangerous. Now in the first reading, we, we saw the Philistine armies, these are the enemies of the people of Israel. We see these armies have beaten Israel, and they've captured the ark. This wooden box was a symbol of God's relationship with his people. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Now a covenant was a set of binding promises and obligations that created a relationship between God and humanity. And the copies of the two stone tablets that, that bore the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant, were kept inside this box. In other words, the Ark represents their relationship with God. And there's actually the model that they made for the film. We'll keep that up there actually because I'll refer to it in a moment. God is said in our reading, to be enthroned above the cherubim. There's the cherubim reaching out their wings across the top. So just imagine that God's throne is in heaven. He rules the universe. And his feet reach down to earth. And as it were, this ark is his footstool. He is enthroned above the cherubim. So this is the point where heaven and earth meet. It's an extraordinarily special place. For this is where human beings may encounter the living God. And this is where God exercises his rule. It is the ultimate throne room, the center of the universe. So the ark was not for public viewing. It wasn't open from nine till five and had a public toilet and a cafe at the end of the corridor. Strict rules guarded how it was supposed to be treated. It was kept in the most sacred part of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and later on, when they built a, a solid temple, it was kept in the most sacred part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go into that place, and only once a year, and even he had to have ropes attached to him in case he died in there and had to be pulled out, because no one was going in after him. The rest of the time, the ark was concealed behind a thick ornamental curtain. Strict instructions specified that only one branch of the Levites could take care of these holy things. They were called the Kohathites. They alone were supposed to carry it, and only after wrapping it first carefully so that it was hidden from view, then it was to be carried on their shoulders using gold-colored poles, gold-covered poles. And you can see even there in the model, they have some uh, rings, hoops at the side, which the poles were to be inserted through. They were not to touch it. And certainly not look inside it. And you can read all about that in Numbers chapter 4. Now everything about this 
communicates that God is majestic, absolutely holy, and completely other from us. We don't come and go as we please. We don't set the terms of engagement. God does. I suspect if you were invited to go and meet the Queen of England, you wouldn't turn up in a scruffy T-shirt and some ripped jeans. But you know the Queen of England is basically the same as you in her PJs. Some years ago, friends of ours were invited to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. Uh, the, the man, whose name was Brian, was a senior civil servant, and periodically they would invite all these uh, people to go to a garden party. There'd be hundreds of people there, but they would potentially meet the Queen. And Brian's wife, June, lovely lady, these, this is a couple at the church I used to go to, stressed about what she was going to wear for months. And eventually she decided on an outfit that was royal blue with white trimmings and blue shoes with white edging. And the pastor of that church, a man whose name is Trevor, was quite a practical joker and he called them and put on his best posh accent, told them that his name was Horatio Ponsonby Smythe and that he was calling from the palace just to let guests know what outfit Her Majesty was going to wear so that they didn't clash. And he told them that the outfit was royal blue with white trimmings and blue shoes with white edging, creating absolute carnage in the sage household and sending the husband out scurrying to the shops. Now that's the queen. But here with God, we're talking about the king of kings, the Lord of all, the ruler of the entire universe. Now hopefully by now you are just getting some sense of how sacred and important this ark was. And in the books of Samuel, there's a key plot line about what happens to the ark. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines capture it, and this is a national tragedy for Israel. And the Philistines take it to their city, Ashdod, and they put it in the temple of their god, whose name is Dagon. Now, this is common practice in the ancient world. If you defeat your enemy, you get their gods, and you add them to your pantheon. The kind of basic religious philosophy is, the more the merrier. Only this god is different. You notice what happened to Dagon? The first night, the statue falls flat on its face in a posture of worship before the ark. So in the morning, the workmen are called in and they're all standing around scratching their heads and having a quick smoke and saying, how on earth did this statue fall here? So they managed to get it back up again. And the second night, not only is Dagon toppled again, this time his, the head and hands of the statue are broken off and they're on the threshold of the temple. What is this teaching us? When the real God shows up in your life, he moves the furniture around. He may turn your life upside down. He sets the terms. He is not obligated to you in any way. You are obligated to him. He can challenge anything about you. He is not answerable to you. He doesn't have to explain himself to you. He doesn't need your approval. God doesn't owe you anything. And the Philistines learn here that the living God isn't interested in a job share. He won't share power. All right, Dagon, you take Monday and Tuesday. I'll have the rest of the week. No, no. You know, we have many idols in our lives. 
many God substitutes that we turn to. In the ancient world, they were represented by statues. We don't usually have statues, do we? But we do have plenty of idols. An idol is anything that you trust in functionally to play the role of God in your life. The thing you turn to for security, safety, significance. But when the real God comes into your life, he breaks the idols. He shows them up as the imposters that they really are. Now in the case of Dagon, wonderfully they find his head and hands broken off on the threshold. I think this is a bit of non-verbal communication. I think God possibly is saying, Dagon has no head. He can't think, he can't listen, he can't speak to you. And Dagon has no hands, he has no power to help you. All you have is a heavy lump of stone to carry around, burdensome. You're the one that loses out. And that is true of every single idol. Only God has a head and hands and a heart. Wake up, it's saying, our idols are the same. Now the next couple of chapters are a comedy of errors where the Philistines desperately try and move the ark away from, <laughs> from, to another city. And it causes chaos because wherever it's moved, there's an outbreak of tumors and people die. So the Philistines just say, we've got to get rid of this thing. Let's send it back to Israel, which they do using a new cart. Important detail here, new cart. Hold on to that for later. Now this cart, it's led by some oxen. The people don't even want to go with it. They just watch from the distance. And they see that the oxen go right the way down the track. They don't turn to the right or the left. And it arrives safely back with Israel. And there they put it in the safekeeping of a guy called Abinadab, where it stays in his house on the hill, on a fairly in a remote town for some decades. Now, fast forward to the life of David, God's chosen king. Through David, God has turned back the tide against the Philistine armies. We learned last week about the decisive victories that God gave David. And David also secured the capital city, Jerusalem. And David now knows that it's possible for the first time in decades to bring the ark back to the center of the country. He wants the glory of God to return to Israel. And 2 Samuel 6 recounts how. Would you turn back to that if you've closed your Bible? It's page 309, 309, 2 Samuel 6. And in verse 1, David summons 30,000 able young men. This is a grand enterprise. This is a huge force. In other words, what is about to take place is the most significant thing in David's career so far. And in verse 2, they go to bring it up, and they're excited, full of anticipation. This ark, it says, is called by the name, the name of the one true God. He is the one who makes it special. And this is the theological problem with Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the idea in the film that this box itself is somehow kind of magic and endowed with powers. And if you could get it, you can use it for your purposes. It's absolute hogwash. The only thing that's powerful about the, the ark is that God chooses to make himself present there. He's the one that makes it special. He's the one that has the power. And it's all going so well. But look, look at verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart. What is going wrong here? 
You know, don't you? This is not how it's supposed to be transported. We should sense that this is an accident waiting to happen. Where are the Kohathites? Where are the poles? Where's the wrapping for the ark? What are you doing putting it on a new cart? This is the Philistine mode of transport. And sure enough, disaster strikes. Verse 5, everyone is celebrating with all their might. There's a, there's a musical instrument for just about everyone here. Castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles. Yep. You can have a rattle even if you're tone deaf. And cymbals, and they're all celebrating with all their might and making music and no doubt singing, but then disaster strikes. Before they've got too far, the oxen stumble, as they are wont to do. And one of the guys who should know better, because he's in charge of the operation, takes that, reaches out and takes hold of this ark. But we should know by now that this is irreverent. It's the height of irreverence. It's sacrilege. And a really shocking thing happens. God's anger burns against Azar, and he is struck down dead. And the party is over. The music stops. Everyone is horrified. This is the big day, and they've made a hash of it. And Azar lies dead by the ark. What went wrong? We know, don't we, that God's Lord prescribed careful, detailed commands for how this ark was to be handled, and they disregarded every single one of them. And now one man had paid the price. You see, what this is teaching us is that God is dangerous. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be treated casually. He's not your mate. And this is not just true, this part of the Bible, it's a constant theme. The Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned against God, they were excluded from his presence by an angel with a sword to keep them out because it was no longer safe for them to be there. When God rescued his people, Israel, and brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them to Mount Sinai where they were to meet with him. This is what it says in Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. He's not safe. People sometimes say, you know, if I could meet God, I'd ask him these questions. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to speak. Whenever he comes down, the earth shakes and cloud obscures his presence because if you saw him, you would die. Uzzah discovered something that we all need to know. The living God is dangerous. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's the Old Testament. Surely this is a bit of legacy of primitive religion. Surely we enter a more enlightened era with Jesus and the apostles. After all, there's a child's song that calls him gentle Jesus, meek and mild. 
Really? Here's Jesus, Matthew chapter 18. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That would be better. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. That's gentle Jesus. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews sums up this teaching with some sober words. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the lesson of the ark in 2 Samuel. God is dangerous. Now, if that was all I had to say today, it would be a very bleak Sunday, wouldn't it? But that is not the end of the story. Far from it. Because the second thing we learn is that God is good. Really, really good. In fact, he is the best thing that could ever happen to you. We pick up the story in, in verse 8. David is angry that day. Rightly so. He is just caused to be angry. Because of sloppy, casual practices, a man is dead. And the people are scared. Talk about an anticlimax. And David bears responsibility for it too. More than that, David is actually scared now. He realizes afresh just who he is dealing with. Maybe he got a bit carried away. And he asks a crucial question in verse 9. If you're zoning out, come back. Look at verse 9 with me. This is the question that the Bible has been asking really since page 3 of the Bible. Here it is. How can the ark of God ever come to me? How can the ark of God ever come to me? In other words, how can God, the Holy One, come and live with me, a sinful person? How can God's presence be in my life without me being consumed? Indeed. And we will see how it is answered. But first, notice what happens. David secures some temporary accommodation for the ark with a, a guy called Obed-Edom the Gittite. It's quite a name. Anyone here who's pregnant thinking about names for a baby could think about this for a son. Actually, don't. Uh, Obed-Edom means the servant of Edom. These were the enemies of Israel. And the Gittites usually refers to people from the town of Gath, which is a Philistine town. 600 of these guys actually joined David's army and were great soldiers. So most likely, this guy is certainly not a Hebrew or an Israelite. He is a Gentile. He's not born as one of God's people. And yet, at the house of Obed-Edom, we see what the ark does next. When the fearsome ark is in the house, what will happen? Will there be death and chaos? Look at what it says in verse 11. It stayed in his house three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. He poured out blessing on him. Now, we don't know exactly what those three months of blessing looked like. We do know that Obed-Edom had eight sons Eight sons to carry on his family. Now that's quite a blessing in the ancient world. First Chronicles 26.4 lists them and says in a parenthesis, for God had blessed Obed-Edom. 
In the Old Testament, blessing from God is usually pictured in terms of barns, babies, and battles. Your barns will be full. You'll have loads of babies, and you'll win all your battles. Blessing from God is usually pictured in terms of shalom, which is a holistic health, prosperity, peace. It's the world we all want being poured out from God. And when God blesses, people enjoy the good life. They drink new wine and sit under their fig tree and their olive tree and enjoy the sunshine. Now that life, that world we all want, came to this guy's house for three months. And you could bet that he never forgot that time for the rest of his life. You see, God is good. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. Every good thing that you enjoy comes from him. The food you eat, the sun in the sky, the laughter on your lips, the joy of friendship, the fun of family, the beauty of creation, the land in which you live, they all come from our good God. God has made everything with the intention of blessing us. The whole intention of God from the first page of the Bible to the last is to bless his people with his presence, not to destroy them. He's a good, good father. And we need even more than just physical health and blessing, don't we? As wonderful as those things are. We need God for himself. We need him. Adam said it earlier. Our hearts were made for him. The African bishop, St. Augustine, in the fourth century said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. There is a rest, a peace that will only, you will only know if you come to terms with the real living God. Now, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher and he writes about this culture that we live in, post-World War II, Western culture. And he says that it's created what he calls exclusive humanism. Exclusive humanism. This means a kind of view of the world that is completely closed to the supernatural or the spiritual. And in this framework, there can be no higher goal in life than just human flourishing. And that life is closed to, to influences from the outside. There is no God, no angels and devils. There's nothing except the sky above. Imagine there's no heaven. John Lennon wrote the hymn for this kind of thinking. And yet, you know, you and I are haunted by the transcendent. We wish there was something more. We sense that there must be more than this. Our hearts were made for him, and they're restless. Julian Barnes, in his memoir, Nothing to be Frightened of, starts with these words, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. God is dangerous, yet God is good, and we need him. And this then creates a problem, doesn't it? It's captured beautifully by David in that question. How can the ark of God ever come to me? How can God dwell with me? We need his blessing. We miss his presence. Yet he is in himself so radically holy and other that he cannot live with us. Our sin has soaked us through like an oily rag 
steeped in petrol such that the slightest spark will set it ablaze and God is a consuming fire. So if we as sinful human beings came into his presence, what will happen? We'll be consumed in an instant. Now, I know this may be challenging. Somebody, some of you here, your concept of God, this may be challenging your concept of God. And let me just say it is a healthy challenge. It's a healthy corrective. It is part of maturity to know what things are dangerous and how to relate to them. Uh, Some of you here are young parents. And you know that as soon as you become a parent, you start to learn to fear certain things. You start to fear electricity. You start to fear water. And you start to fear traffic, like you haven't ever feared them before. But you know that that young toddler, that baby, that young child, needs to be taught the right healthy fear, don't they? I learned this so deeply that even if I'm standing at a crossroads in the middle of the night and there is no traffic for one mile on either direction, I still wait for the man to turn green, just in case a child saw me and followed. If you climb, you know those, power, those um, pylons, those towers by the, often you see them in the countryside, carrying those cables with high voltage electricity. You know they have things that stop people climbing up them, barbed wire and stuff. If you, if you were to get through that and climb up, as I think some people have done, to an overhead power line and grasp a live cable carrying thousands of volts of electricity, what will happen to you? You can't say it's not fair. It's just the nature of electricity. Don't mess about with it. If you were on a ship and you jumped from the bow into the depths of the ocean during a storm with no life jacket, what will happen to you? You can't say it's not fair. It's the nature of water. But our God is not an impersonal force. He is a personal being. And although his nature is to consume us, He wants relationship. He wants to be with us. He wants to embrace us. How can he do it? God is dangerous. God is good. Therefore, we need a solution. Final point. We need a solution. And David points us to it. In verse 12, he hears about the blessing that uh, Obed-Edom has received. And David thinks, I've got to revive the project. I've got to bring this ark to Jerusalem. This blessing should be shared with the whole country and through them the world. So it says he went to bring it up to the city of David. Now just notice a few details. Uh, if you Back to uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 13. When those who were carrying it had taken six steps, they're carrying it now, there are no carts. Verse 13, they then sacrificed after six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. This is reverence for God. This is giving him his due. And these, according to Leviticus chapter 1, are sacrifices of atonement that take away sin. Something has to die for sin to be taken away. And these animals take the place of the people. Verse 14, David takes off his royal robes. He knows he's not the king here. 
And he dresses as a priest with an ephod made of linen. And he rejoices with all his heart. He dances because the presence of God is coming back to the heart of the nation. And in verses 17 and 18, they arrive at the city and they sacrifice again. And then they eat. And David blesses the people in God's name. And it gives us all this detail. He gives them all a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to everyone there, both men and women. What is going on with this food? It's saying this, you can have fellowship with God. You can come into his presence and eat with him and be safe because the relationship is restored somehow through sacrifice. And all these aspects are crucial for us to understand today because they show us how we are going to answer that question, how can the living God ever come to me? God is dangerous, yet he's good. We need a solution. And a solution that we know is even greater. It is Jesus Christ. Where's the sacrifice? It's Jesus. He gave himself for us on the cross to take away our sin. A sacrifice of atonement. Where's the priest? It's Jesus. He enters heaven with the sacrifice and presents us and represents us before God. Where's the fellowship? We now enjoy it with one another and with God. Where's the meal? It's the Lord's Supper. We're going to take bread and wine in a few minutes to remind us of this restored fellowship. Where's the joy? I hope it's bubbling up inside you. Because this is what Jesus Christ was accomplishing for you on his cross. He was a sacrifice that takes away sin. He was a priest mediating between us and God. This is what one eyewitness wrote about the cross. Matthew chapter 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you could be welcomed in. Jesus was torn apart so that you could be put back together. And that tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom, notice no human hand could do that, was a divine tearing because now it's safe for God to come out and for us to be in his presence because we are in Christ protected by him brothers and sisters we can dwell with him and so we eat the lord's supper what does this mean for you there will be people here who are circling round the edge of church you know there's things here that you like what you see but you're hesitating to commit yourself you don't want to make the jump you're worried about what people will think you're worried about what they will say. You're worried about what might happen if you become one of those Christians. You know, the really keen ones. Perhaps you're worried about losing control of your life. 
Let me remind you, God is dangerous. But who knows what's best for you? God is good. And look what he gave to win you. His only son on the cross. Will you come to Jesus today? Even in the prayer at the end of this sermon, even in the song, even when we have the Lord's Supper, will you come to Jesus now and ask him to have mercy upon you and to become your king and to take away your sins? And he will do it. And then talk to a Christian afterward. Now there will be some here who are Christians, brothers and sisters. I have to ask you about your sin. I know we all sin. We all fail in many ways. But is there something habitual? Is there sin in your life that you have allowed to become besetting? You love this sin. You cherish it. You stubbornly refuse to let it go. I need to remind you too, God is dangerous. He is not to be trifled with. Yes, in Christ you are safe, absolutely. But he is still a consuming fire. So let us worship him with reverence and awe. And as you come to the table, you need to come. But put that sin to death right now. Look in the corner of the room. Imagine you see a hill far away with a cross, three crosses. And in the middle is a man dying. And he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out, it is finished. And he's taken away all your sins. So don't stay in them any longer. You, that's not you. Turn back to him again. Let's pray.